0: Welcome to The Property Perspective, a podcast by Knight Frank Australia. We'll share expert analysis from industry leaders, focus on key trends and forecasts, and bring you the latest topics shaping Australia's property market. Hello, Me. Your report, Your Space, was released early this year, which you and your team authored. There were some incredible findings out of that. One of them being that at the office level and in terms of market implications, that the workplace is really going to become more about experience mm-hmm. rather than the physical environment. Mm-hmm. How, what would you comment on? That?
1: Well, I think it's a, a really important sort of dynamic that's emerging in the sort of post-COVID workplace. I think what we've seen is the supply side of the real estate sector has, for many years now, delivered fundamentally good product. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, we'll travel around the world looking at real estate <laughs> and talk to occupiers and landlords. You yeah, Buildings are of a better quality than they've ever been, uh, you know, particularly new, you know, new buildings and, and full refurbishment. So we've kind of got the product piece sorted out, the environment that we present to occupiers is sorted out. But I think the one thing that we're seeing in terms of workplace dynamics now, uh, particularly in the post-COVID world, is we need a bit more of a pull factor to get people back into the workplace after the COVID experience. And we also are now competing, the office is now competing with other workplace settings, be that home, be that preferred spaces, etc. And as a result, you need to see a better experience in that workplace. And I think that is an obligation on both the occupier and the landlord to start trying to deliver that experience to make the offer a, a little bit more compelling to users that now have a choice. So that was essentially the principle. I think what we've seen in the marketplace, what I've seen having been down here for a week now and what I've seen in London and other sort of global marketplaces is that The very best landlords are really starting to grapple with this and starting to work, actually, interestingly, in partnership with end users to start to deliver that. Um, And that experience doesn't need to be highfalutin', doesn't need to be, you know, anything sensational. I've heard lots of virginal gimmicks in in, in, in particularly in the immediate post-COVID environment to try and bring people back. I don't think it's about that. I think experience can be quite fundamental and rudimental. It can be as simple as having IT that works and, you know, which is one of the great frustrations of the workplace for many. Um, but I think it's about creating a human experience where people are coming into work to actually connect, collaborate, socialise, have a bit of fun, all the things that we perhaps not had enough of um, in, in the last couple of years. So that, that to me is the essence of experience.
0: And Andrea, what are you seeing in Australia where this trend might be playing out, how have things shifted, particularly, as Lee says, in the post-COVID world? Yeah, so um, just before COVID,
2: you know, most major landlords in in Australia were well and truly on the customer experience journey. It was extremely important to, you know, build the relationships and and provide amenity that was going to cause their customers and tenants to become stickier because that's better for everyone. But now with the experience piece, as you've said, Lee, when an occupier, when an employee comes back to their office, you want the experience to be a really positive one. It's not just about them getting to their floor and having a desk and some space. It's about the person who greets them at the front door. What services do they offer? And it is that human and community element as well that's really positive, but also backing that up with the fact that they, if you're working in a building with, building with fantastic amenity, then it makes your day more pleasant, it makes your life more pleasant, hopefully you've got all the things you need um, at, at your doorstep, and um, and, um, and that's what we're seeing the demand for. And it was happening at the top end of town pre-COVID, now is an expectation that it's across all grades of buildings uh, commensurate with, you know, the investment that is appropriate to be made.
1: I think it's a really important point right at the start of what Andrew said, Andrew said there, which is this stuff was already happening, and were, you know, so many of the trends that we're seeing in the post-COVID workplace discussion were actually trends we saw prior to COVID, and they've just been accelerated or turbocharged through the through the whole process, uh, and and they're becoming ever more important. So I, I back that read that you know, having been down here in Australia in twenty eighteen. I was already seeing that experience and that service yes. layer sort of emerging. And the hybrid work it.
2: from home, that was available to your organisations for you know seven
0: years. But it's exactly. forced us to go, you have to work from
2: home, so then everyone has to do
0: it. So to Lee's earlier point, um, we're looking for that pull factor where the occupiers are demanding it more actively. Are you seeing that when you're taking occupiers through inspections, what are they asking of the building now? that is you know, linked towards the customer experience, what's important to them? Well, what is important to them is really
2: what benefits are, it, are their employees going to be getting by coming to the building. It's way beyond Ticking, PCA, Matrix grade. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more of the experience and what you're seeing in fit outs and where you're seeing uh, lobby refurbishment and end of trip refurbishment going is far more up the luxury scale far more uh, towards what you'd more expect in high-end residential and service-wise what you'd expect in a hotel. That's what you, you know, kind of best-in-class expectation of providing service to, occup- to, to occupants. So, um, you know, when you, you're taking um, representatives or occupiers through space, they're keen not just to get and look at the space itself that you're actually trying to lease them, it's the whole journey about what's my arrival experience, who's on the front door, what's the lift like, what's the arrival onto my lobby like, what are the bathrooms like? Yes, got to look at the space and assess that too. What's the end of trip like? What's the food and beverage in the precinct? It is the whole ecosystem of what's available.
1: And, and I would add to that that one of the things that's really quite um, can can be challenging is that actually there's so many more stakeholders vested in the real estate decision that occupier is making. That so you, the stakeholder group that you have to appeal to to sell the vision of the real estate move because it's so strategic. Suddenly you've got to appeal to the CEO who have a different set of drivers to the CFO. That have a different set of drivers to the HR community and we've even seen examples of our benefits here I'm sure it is of, of actually cohorts of staff actually being taken around option buildings yeah. and actually you know almost road testing some of the some of the offer um, so I think actually it's really quite a challenge now to appeal to a broad church of stakeholders with all slightly different drivers and, and wants and wishes and coalescing all that together into one sort of a fundamental strategic decision is quite quite challenging and it, and it does play to the point around having service and having a broader sweep of of amenities in the
0: building. I think that idea about bringing cohorts of staff through is really interesting because we talked about the Great Resignation, but in fact it's probably the Great Reflection where Mm -hmm. employees are now saying, I want a more purpose-led working life, how can my employer help me, you know, deliver that, how can they, when I come to work, how do I get that experience? Um, you know, what sort of, how are we seeing built environments honouring the workforce, you know, in the markets that you're seeing? How how are occupiers trying to fulfil that inside the workforce, workplace? Well, I think every new
2: building that's built, um, just ups the ante in terms of amenity. And you can see, you know, the, the products just been delivered, Key Quarter Towers, the newest tower in Sydney, it's got the most amazing views in Australia, which is, you know, truly fortunate for its location. But its characteristics around delivering the uh, green space, the huge amount of retail space—about 4,000 square meters of retail will be down there. One of the best boutique food and beverage precincts um, in a heritage environment, right at the doorstep, as well as you know um, access to green space, which we are seeing as a real drawcard. If you are at, if you are located close to a significant park. Or the domain or the harbour as key quarter is. Those things are a draw card from a health and wellbeing perspective for a customer. We've seen the flight quality for COVID because I think anyone sitting in a really bland office space with just desks and meeting rooms, that kind of um, workplace isn't flying and that's why we're seeing um, tenants look for new space. The easiest way to look for new space is look for the best and the brightest, and that is really why the market is being dragged up to that flight quality. And where we see space being vacated, landlords are really investing in upping the refurbishment and bringing back that backfield space to a really high quality level to match the amenity that's, that's on offer in the rest of the market.
1: And and again, I think that makes a really important point about amenity, which uh, which is a point I make a lot when I talk to landlords. Is that actually the amenity provision doesn't necessarily need to be in your domain, but it does need to be in the micro location around the building that you're offering. And I think as a result, what we're now seeing is occupiers, I've certainly seen this in London, London, historically a city of villages, right? So we've now got occupiers looking at not just the asset that they might be considering, but looking at the entire around the 15-minute walk sort of boundary around that site saying okay what else does it present and I think from a landlord perspective you know I had this in 2018 when we did the first edition of your space we talked about amenity back then and and what you got was a a conversation or a a pushback from landlord community saying we get all of that we understand why there would be a use case from an occupier's perspective for this long list of uh, amenities. we can't possibly provide it all. Uh, And I think where we've now got to is a recognition that that's absolutely right. You can't possibly provide it all, but you can think about the provision and complement the provision of other assets and other spaces that are within your micro location. And as a result, what that does is bring vibrancy to the centres, which we absolutely need after after the COVID period.
0: I think when you look at it from an ESG perspective, it's not about what can you provide in the office building, but what. Community does the building occupy, and how can it actually contribute to that community, and as well as draw from it? Um, so, social sustainability is getting um, a lot more airtime now. Environmental sustainability is presumed, I think, to a certain degree, um, but social sustainability is um, it, it's from diversity, inclusion, to equity. But health and wellbeing is a really big one, obviously post pandemic. Um, what are you seeing? Andrea, of this market that focuses on that aspect of social
2: sustainability. Um, there's a couple of things that are, you know, uh, being focused on elements in the build environment that are really helping support the mental um, health and well-being uh, position. Because as we know, I mean, particularly in places like Melbourne that were, you know, had one of the harshest lockdowns in in the world. Um, Employee communities and HR divisions of companies are really focused on how are we looking after our people? What is our community? How do we, those people who are living at home and working alone, like how are we bringing them back? And you mentioned community and I think one of the positive things about COVID and working at home, if you were in your own local little village, it was walking up and seeing people and having that human connectivity with familiar faces, which is why, like, building communities through, you know, whether it's online portals, physical events, um, activities within buildings, so people feel that human connection and a space to belong because, you know, um, if you're just coming in from wherever you need to commute, from, to sit at your desk all day, but you're not interacting. It's the other layers that employers and landlords need to layer up in terms of the experience to bring people together and make it all about your neighbourhood, your premises, what good things are going on in that little community. Yeah. I think there's a
1: push and a pull on the wellbeing piece as well. So the push is actually a productive, a productive workforce is generally a healthy workforce, and, and 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 the other factor I think is is actually from the perspective of uh, the, employer themse- uh, the employee themselves, that's the direction of travel. There are lots of studies that suggest that actually, you, you mentioned the word purpose earlier. Employees want purpose in that—in in, in not just in their working lives but in their lives, period. And okay. some of that purpose is about looking after oneself. I, I think there's a really interesting set of dynamics emerging around the wellbeing agenda. Um, I think we've done physical wellbeing, that's pretty derogatory in most high quality office buildings. End of trip you've mentioned, you know, that's. Mm-hmm building I go in has got a pretty good end of trip we're we're starting to see uh, in in the wider world mental well-being facilities but to Andrew's point when I was back down here in 2018 that was already a function of the Australian workplace I think they were way you were way ahead Mm. of of where the rest of the world is I think the next sort of frontier is around um, personal growth and development and actually people seeing that as a really important part of their own well-being and actually, people in, and companies then start to think actually that could work for us too, because yeah, it enables us to have people that are upskilled and reskilled, rather than people that are sitting within a skill set that's sort of five years old and not really applicable to the job they're doing. And so, I think there might be a really interesting play here around educational amenity within the workplace, whether it's informal bleacher space, whether it's adapted office space into classrooms, whether it's educational infrastructure within a, a micro location that companies can draw upon. Events programs which you've mentioned, but I think the next thing is is that whole piece around growth and development.
0: So I think there's some interesting programs here. One of them in this market is um, the Barangaroo construction site actually offered learning space for some of its construction workers so they could skill up um, whether it was numeracy skills or learning how to um, uh, calculate certain things in the construction industry that could actually take time out and there's a dedicated educational space for that. That's really exciting. That's investor-led or landlord-led. Um, and all of these programs have been active for many years, I mean, with a focus primarily on health and well-being in the past. Um, and I think the important challenge has been, they've all been great things, but how are we assessing and measuring them? So I think the property industry in Australia has just made a really important first step. A couple of months ago, they just released their collective social impact framework. So all of these social sustainability programs can actually be reported on. And assessed and benchmarked against each other. Because so up until this point I think it was all great stuff um, and I think the call out was what impact are we actually making um, on our community and with the people who occupy the building. So that's been a really important first step I think in this marketplace. Yeah. So um, Andrea tell us a little bit about the trend towards biophilia and introducing biodiversity into the workplace. Um, We're seeing uh, biophilia as one element of the natural environment that's really having an influence
2: on how fit-outs are designed. That really ties into the the mental health um, aspect of looking at ways that people feel more comfortable, more relaxed, more calm and, and centred when they're in their workplace. So biophilia is the use of real plants as opposed to fake plants in the workplace so that there's a positive contribution to the fresh air quality. As we all know, we all became obsessed with fresh air and, and clean air and making sure that we were not breathing any, any uh, germs in, in, um, in COVID. But uh, the, the journey towards uh, integrating much more plant life, natural life, fresh air into uh, fit outs was already underway and it's only ever, it's only going to become more important because it just
0: in, it provides a, a better, healthier workplace. I think it's important to, to think about the fact that this isn't a gimmick and it is proven that um, plants in the workplace actually do improve your health and well-being. I think in Canada, doctors can actually prescribe a, um, a nature deficit day where you can actually go and spend a day in nature in order to recollect yourself and improve your own health and well-being. So... It's not um, something that's uh, not proven. I think it's, it's really got its roots in health and wellbeing. Yeah, there's a lot of scientific evidence around
2: it. And if you talk to, you know, mostly uh, major architectural firms who are designing fit outs, they have all the facts and figures to support the reasons why that organisations have to invest so much money in real plants because you not only have to provide them, you have to keep them alive and maintain them. So um, there is, you know, overwhelming scientific evidence behind it that it it is a positive contributor to our health and wellbeing.
1: And and I think if you look at, you know, sort of emergent best practices, one of the sort of case studies I've been talking about a little bit on this trip is Google's new headquarters at a Baby or campus at Baby and you know they've got biophilic design principles running entirely through that that whole project which they've delivered from about twenty eighteen to present with a lot of input from their own staff. And you know, it, you're right, this isn't a giving. This is something that's actually got a scientific base, but actually is, a, is something that I think users of space are starting to on onto and realise that actually can be a beneficial, uh, beneficial to their uh, health and well being. And there's actually a corporate imperative around this as well, because actually, if you think about it, you know the worst thing you can have is an unhealthy workforce in terms of the, the, the drain on resource, the cost, yeah. all you know the lost productivity, all of that stuff has a real economic price. So, um, you know, all these things are starting to align, I think.
2: And it extends to to um, a demand that we're seeing for terrace spaces. Mm that are landscaped, that are made, you know, physically comfortable, that are enabled with Wi-Fi so that people can actually work outdoors and work properly, collaborate and have meetings outdoors. Um, Any building, existing building that has a balcony or a terrace that's always the space that's in the highest demand. And Lee, you've shown us quite a lot of examples from the UK where rooftops are activated with green space and um, new builds are practically building balconies on every level in some examples yeah. so that they can be utilised by the occupants.
1: Oh, it's been a huge issue in the London market, You know, premium buildings now with terrace space open, uh, yeah, winter gardens, access to open space, there is the Roots in the sky um, uh, program that's being developed that's got an urban forest essentially on its rooftop. You know, it's astonishing how quickly that's moved and also how in demand it is, it, even in a market like London where it's raining yeah. most of the time. <laughs> <relative> to-
0: <laughs> the open spaces and the access to fresh air is really important, but I think it's also the access to natural light. So, whilst maybe in years gone by we're used to actually existing in artificial light inside an office. They say that if you have adequate access to natural light, 84% of building occupants will actually report that they've increased their vision, they're not getting as many headaches, um, and they're just much more focused. So uh, fresh air, natural light, all the things that come with um, an outdoor lifestyle are really what we're trying to incorporate into the built environment now. Um, Another finding from the report that Lee authored was something about the configuration of space um, actually transforming in the next property cycle. And Andrea, you're seeing that playing out now, aren't you?
2: Yeah, we are. We're seeing that the way fit outs are designed, uh, it's um, and now looking at a multitude of different spaces and how they're used. So if you look at how a, a single floor used to look, people were really focused on how efficient, how many bodies you could get in there and jam in those desks and make it, you know, really great bang for, for your buck on a um, workspace ratio point of view. But now, what we're seeing is even on single floor te- in single floor tenancies, we're seeing um, design um, led uh, thought around spaces need to have more than one use. You don't just build a boardroom and that's the boardroom. You build it so that it opens up into coo- into waiting lobby areas, you build it so that it can be the town hall space to get everyone in the organisation together. You build it so that it can join other rooms, so you can use it for educational purposes. We're also seeing that um, even in small tenancies, there might be a front of house kitchen and a back of house kitchen, the front of house for more entertaining and getting people together, the back of house for staff to to communally each together and have their own space. So those types of spaces on single floor tenancies, you didn't really see them before. That was really a multi-use, multi-floor, big user element. And then you've got the different types of desks, taking out rows and rows of desks, changing the configuration of them, having a variety of different um, styles and structures, having smaller areas where people can do single focus work and and concentrate but not forced to stay at home and work by themselves. And then lots of lounging kind of meeting areas where you can sit around comfortably, huddle with your team. Um, But most importantly over this is everything's tech enabled. There's got to be screens, there's got to be seamless technology that supports you being able to communicate with the people who aren't in the office and, and,
0: and make that a really good experience on both sides. Are you seeing that shift from
1: rigidity to flexibility play out in the spaces that you've been working? in? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, when we when we tend to talk about flexibility, we often the conversation goes down the channel of looking at least flexibility. Actually, I think it's really important for an occupier standpoint to be thinking about the configuration of the work of, of, of the floor plate and how flexible it is, but also to Andrew's point, how varied it is. I think. Yeah, you know, we did have a workplace pre COVID, although there were honourable exceptions that were pushing things on uh, amongst the occupiers, global occupiers. But you know, generally we did have a workplace that was a bit sort of mono, it was sort of in style and, and and aesthetic and design. I think variety, uh, creating different settings for different work styles and indeed for different types of job. Yeah, you know, when we talk we talk about knowledge workers or office workers, we tend to think they all do kind of the same thing. There's a huge multitude of things that people do. Some of which require collaboration. Some of which require focus time. You need spaces to be able to reflect that and support that. And I, I think occupiers have started to get ahead around that, as indeed have landlords. You know, it's interesting now when you, uh, you know, talking to leasing agents, you, know, you, you see a multitude of different floor plans now with different design configurations on them. It isn't just the standard. Is what here is the maximum amount of desks you can get in? It's much more sophisticated than that. Um, and I think that variety, I think the one thing that sort of points to for me is that the world of the workplace going forward is going to be ever more varied. It's not, I, 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 I said this to somebody earlier, that work, workplace design and workplace
2: strategy is now, I believe, it's not about cooking cutter or any longer. It's about something that's highly bespoke and personalised and individual to each company that's using the space. I think that's going to make offices much more interesting. Yeah, it's because it's got a tie to the culture. It's not a built environment that just is fantastic as the type of furniture it is. The cultural element, if you have a bad culture, you're not going to be able to get people to come back to work regardless of, you know, the environment that you find them. Both have got to go hand in hand as a holistic toolkit. Yeah, and I think not only is it culture, but it's also brand and identity. So. Yeah, one of the themes of your space is that the, the workplace is becoming a more
1: strategic consideration and the number one strategic consideration that comes out of research is culture brand and identity of, of organizations being reflected through workspace yes. you know it used to be in the in, in the old days when i started my career it was all about signage and trophy buildings and that's how you portrayed your brand i think it's turned on its inside now and it's all about the design look and feel that people that come into the building both staff but also clients actually start to get a sense of the organisation purpose, value through the design I think that's become a, a really important trend.
0: Yeah, I think we're probably going to also see that play out further into the built environment the workplace, supporting the sustainability, social sustainability objectives as well. You know, so how is this environment I've provided for our staff actually ticks some boxes for me in terms of what I promised to them in terms of like, employee value proposition or my commitment to their to um, the diversity of my staff, that I don't expect them all to be made from a cookie cutter, that they like to work in different ways and I respect them as an individual and their work style. So I think in terms of the workplace being a strategic lever for occupiers, they can actually leverage what the owners are providing in the building, what they create in their workspace to to say, yes, we are achieving some of these sustainable strategic objectives as well. I think
2: it's important to make the point that The flight to quality doesn't infer that everyone's got to move to a new building because uh, that physically isn't going to be possible in in every sense. But what we're seeing with the flight to quality is what we've talked about in terms of the amenity that's on offer as well as a move into to new office space. So when a new building is built, what it does create is typically some backfill space. And what we've seen through this cycle, uh, particularly in Melbourne, have just been through a huge development cycle and quite a number of uh, significant iconic assets have been through very large refurbs and, and brought those assets back up to the, the standard of a new asset, you know, with, with amazing architecturally designed lobbies, brand new end of trip facilities that match and in some cases even exceed new build end of trip facilities. So it just has dragged the market up in terms of quality um, across the board, which is why everyone is overusing this term flight quality. And it doesn't mean that B grade is, office space is dead in the water. I think B grade makes up about 55% of the Sydney market. There's always a place and a price point for B grade and we've got, we're working actually on a number of examples in B grade assets where uh, landlords have invested capital to upgrade their lobbies, upgrade their amenities, upgrade their end of trip to make sure that they meet the market demand for the occupiers in that space and they've still been able to exceed their you know, original expectations in terms of letability both in time and rent. So, the whole flight to quality piece just it really does apply across every asset grade, existing and new. And I, I think what that also points to is we, we did a piece
1: about three months after COVID started where we, we tried to highlight 12 dynamics that might shape you know, not only Occupy behaviour, but the, the, the dynamics of the market and the dynamics of the office. And the, top, the, the number one uh, dynamic that we talked about at a corporate level. Was we think you're going to get a sort of um, division in terms of occupied behaviour, driven by what, where the strategic priorities lie. So uh, yeah, I think that's quite an interesting point because we we did a piece about three to four months into the COVID experience and said, you know, what's the dynamics that are going to shape the market, shape occupational behaviour, shape the office asset uh, in the, pr- the post-COVID world. And one of those dynamics at the corporate level is that we think we might see a bit of a division in behaviour over time where some corporates are needing to sort of think about perhaps being a bit more of a survival mode and will become a little bit more of a, um, a, a player at the lower end of the market, not going for prime prime space. And you've got others that are going to push for purpose and perhaps try and drive that strategic uh, direction with real estate a little bit more. And I think you're going to see a bit more of that as the macroeconomic environment changes and you get you know, some of that tension starts to bubble up. But it's really important, the point Andrew's making, I think, is that irrespective of which camp you fall into, there's still, a quality option available, and I think, I, I think personally, from what I've seen, the Australian markets are a little bit ahead of that in terms of recognizing that and trying to support that. The other issue, of course, with B space is you know the traditional development approach of knocking it down a site and again, is sort of disappearing pretty rapidly from an ESG standpoint. So, this behavior mm-hmm. about readaption, uh, repurposing. Uh, rethinking, reimagining all of that's really going to be massively important, not just for here, but for global markets.
0: Before you go, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on the next episode of The Property Perspective, when we'll be back to share our take on more key trends and topics shaping Australia's property market. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or visit our website at knightfrank.com.au for more information. Thanks for tuning in. It may be the end of the show, but we're always your partners in property.